0: Psalm 32, beginning in verse one. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle From my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore. Let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will counsel do not be like a horse or mule without understanding; that must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. Many t- pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones! Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's set this over. Here. If you open your eyes, you turn on the television, you scroll through social media, you will only take a few moments before you are hit with the reality of the sin that is all so prevalent around us. Uh, Governments, social systems, institutions are all, or have corruption within them. We have a media system, media companies that profit or monetize suffering the more salacious are suffering, the more money, potential, income for these media companies. We have all kinds of stories of injustice and stories of mistreatment, of oppression and corruption. These are, dare I say, a dime a dozen. As hor- horribly callous as that sounds, and rightfully so, it's true. Assault, rape, robbery, murder, slander, lies, filthy language. This, this is what it means. To live as human in human civilization, quote unquote, and you might say, as I've heard many people, I think I even heard someone yesterday say, "Man, the world needs saving." <laughs> Man, the world needs saving, and I don't think that's too difficult to see. the uh, The sin that's out there is so great, but. What if that was only part of the problem of sin, the sin out there? And what if that part of the problem of sin was not even really the most pressing part, at least for you and for me? What if what we are able to see so clearly out there is oftentimes unseen and invisible in here? For the modern and postmodern mind, it's very hard to see the brokenness that is so much closer to home. Uh, The postmodern mind says that there's a light of goodness within, and it is my job to clean the lens, clean the glass, so that the goodness within me can show out to you, and you are to simply accept it as it's presented. (laughs) No questions asked. And so the idea of brokenness within, broken in the heart, broken in the, at the level of desires and affections is all but foreign to our modern moment. And I believe the season of Lent, these 40 days, not counting the Sundays, leading us up to um, Easter, these are an invitation for us to take the first steps toward God's offer of salvation. Most of you, many of you, all of you have already done that. But we proclaim it year after year, day after day because it is in that salvation that there is great power. And it is in that story of the gospel that God intends to reshape the world and call sons and daughters to himself. And so it is our job to continually remember and retell the great story of God and his salvation. It's... It's easy to recognize the corruption out there, but it is not easy to recognize the evil inclinations of our own heart. And even more so, it's more difficult to call them out through confession and repentance. And here we have Psalm 32, where David, who was a shepherd boy, who became king, anointed king over Israel, he was a man, the Bible says, who was after God's own heart, and yet we also know that the Bible shows us that he was a sinful and flawed human being, very relatable to us. And yet he loved and walked humbly with the Lord. And he is the one, we are told, in the heading of Psalm 32 who wrote this psalm. And in verse one, he uses a word that is pretty much foreign to all of our like, colloquial speech. Uh, he says, how joyful is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Transgression is not a word we just throw around, right? That doesn't just slip out while we're at the grocery store. (laughs) Transgression is taken from the Hebrew word, which means self-centered rebellion. Self-centered rebellion. It means to revolt or to rise up in clear defiance to authority, now, we, we love to use all kinds of euphemisms when it comes to sin, don't we? I made a mistake. I messed up. Whoa, I had an error in judgment. Man, I made a poor choice. I had a moment of weakness. And to be certain, we, we all can make mistakes and we all have moments of weaknesses, And we make unwise choices all the time, but actually some of those are not sinful. They're simply the frailty of being human and what it means to live in a broken, corrupt world. But more often than not, we know the difference. We know what we're doing if we really stop and examine. We know inside what is right and we know what we have instead chosen to do. And therein is what the word transgression means, self-centered rebellion, to revolt, to rise up in clear defiance to authority or to an authority. And in this case, our euphemisms are all just softball ways of us passing off the buck, passing the blame for our sins, handing it off and saying, hey, I'm not gonna own up to that. I'll own up to a mistake, but I won't own up to rebellion, revolt, defiance of authority, uh, Augustine, in his Confessions, his writing called Confessions, he gave a story from his youth. He and his buddies used to go out, and they would steal pears, just steal pears off of other people's trees, and they would eat them. And he recalls this story, and he remembers at one point in time asking himself, why do Why do I do that? He had a little bit of a moment of self-reflection. Why do I go and I steal these pears off of, of these trees with my buddies. And he realized that it wasn't because the pears were particularly great. He he recognized in his life he had access to all kinds of top-notch fruit available to him, including pears. These weren't exceptional pears that you had to get your hands on, and therefore it was worth stealing. He also wasn't hungry. It wasn't like he was starved or he was an outcast, you know, or someone who didn't have food, someone living on the streets. And so he continued this process of reflection. Why do I do this? And after deliberating with himself for a bit, it dawns on him, and he writes this. He said, My pleasure was not in the pears, my pleasure was in the crime itself. I liked stealing, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed taking what was not mine, it made me feel something. And this self-centeredness that Augustine is recalling where everything revolves around what I want or what my eyes desire and therefore I do it and it feeds that desire and causes more desire to rise up. Well, that is the root of all evil and problems in the world that we face. The problems out there that we recounted at the beginning are all at root self-centered pride, self-centered desire, that reaches out and takes the forbidden fruit because it wants to. It ignores the good and right commands of God's word. Why? Well, in Augustine's perspective, in his situation, simply for rebellion's sake. Because I can, so I will. I ask you today, do you take it seriously? Do you have a right view of sin as rebellion? Do you agree with the word the Bible chooses? Transgression, rebellion. Do you take seriously or do you mask over the sin in your own heart with niceties? Oh, that's just my personality. You know, baby, I was born this way. do you put lipstick on the pig to make it sting a little bit less and forget that it's a pig? Well, what is the solution? What is the hope in the midst of this sin-stained reality we all find ourselves in? Surely it's not to keep quiet about our sins. It's not to push it down all the way to the back, you know, to the dark recesses of our heart. Maybe if we put it out of sight, then it'll be out of mind. Or maybe if we don't make eye contact with it, it's not real. Like it's a horror movie or something. Well, David in Psalm 32, what he said is that when he kept his sin hidden, something happened to him when he tried to do that, when he tried to push it down and not call it for what it is and not acknowledge what it is, something happened to him. He says his bones were wasting away within him. It felt like his bones were wasting away. He said it felt like being out in the midday sun, beating down on him like heat stroke. It was draining the strength from his body when he tried to keep silent. Did you know the effects of unconfessed sin can actually cross the boundary between the abstract into the concrete, into the actual physical? Did you know that the effects of unconfessed sin can drain you of your life's vibrancy? That you can hang your head in sorrow and grief and not even know why, because of unconfessed sin that has been shoved to the back into the darkest parts. And it will strangle out the joy of living. David experienced it in Psalm 32. But he actually adds to it. He says, my unconfessed sin had this physical, like it was almost like a physical effect on my body. But then in verse four, he says that he was also experiencing the heavy hand of God on him. The heavy hand of God convicting his sin, trying to draw him to the place of repentance. He felt God's hand on him he realized that God would not allow him to carry on in comfort while sin slowly eroded away at his heart. God would not withstand that. God would not bear that. And so he placed his hand heavy upon David so that he might feel the effects of sin. C.S. Lewis said, every uncorrected error and unrepented sin is in its own right a fountain of fresh air and fresh sin flowing on to the end of time. Truth is that hidden sin kills. Hidden sin slowly kills. And also hidden sin multiplies sin. It multiplies sin in our life. It causes us to always retract back to a hidden state, always back to a place of darkness. And the deeds of darkness, the things that happen in the dark, are not the things that happen in the light. And so sin is multiplied when we withdraw into that place, when we leave things in the cupboards, push far back. You, know that, you, always, you have that cupboard in the house, right? That one cupboard that no one goes in. The one over the fridge for us, right? It's like no one could reach it anyway. Certainly not in our house. I could reach it, but no one else could reach it. And no one's gonna go in there. Well we just shove our sin in that one cupboard. We also make an error in that. We make an error in the fact that we think time actually erases sin. For some of you, you think a sin, an egregious sin against heaven, against God, that is currently unrepentant in your heart, that you did 15 years ago, and you have never acknowledged and brought before the Lord in repentance. you think that the 15 years has erased that sin. It hasn't. It's a dark spot. And we oftentimes withdraw and go back to those places, and from that place is like cancer. One cell, multiplying, multiplying, multiplying until it consumes. And we've all experienced exactly what David's speaking of. I think maybe when we were younger and we were a little more sensitive, but you knew when you were under guilt, trying to hide something, hoping no one would find out, but thinking that everything anyone ever said to you was actually them seeing right through you (laughs) and they could see the guilt and they knew you were guilty and you just wanted to say something, but you couldn't say it. The first sin that's recorded in history, in human history, led immediately to hiddenness. And you and I, we don't hide behind bushes. Maybe some of us do, but we typically don't hide behind bushes because of our sin. But we hide behind busyness. We hide behind 80-hour work weeks. We hide behind anger, pointing the finger at those other people who are causing you know, harm and distress in my life. My life would be better if not for them. We hide. We hide all the time because we will do anything to avoid contact with Almighty God. Because contact with God will require facing the rebellion in our own hearts. David then says, then I acknowledge my sin. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Sin must be confessed. And confession begins with acknowledging that sin is sin. It acknowledges that in the sinning, When we sin, we enter into a forbidden area. We cross a divine boundary that was set by God between what is good and what is evil or wrong. And when we confess, we first have to acknowledge, and in acknowledging, we first agree with God and God's perspective. We say, we see this as you see it. And when we do that, when we acknowledge sin, we draw a boundary around it, and we isolate our sin Away from the other parts of our heart, we draw that boundary around it, and then we—God can come in and do surgery on that part. When we isolate it by confessing and acknowledging it, true confession is not punishment for our sins. Some of us parents have fallen in; we're guilty of this because we'll force a confession out of our kids, and they'll begin to blend the thinking that confession is a part of the punishment. (laughs) You're going to make me say this out loud. And what we really should be doing is acknowledging the ways that they erred but showing them that confession is the route out. Confession is the way to healing. Confession is the first step toward pardon. It's not the punishment, it's the remedy. It's the fixing. But even in confession, there is a danger that we face and that is of self-pity we can even get confession wrong in the book of 1 Corinthians the apostle Paul says that there are two kinds of grief not not this one yet Nate there are two kinds of grief that we can respond to sin with it says that we can respond with godly grief or we can respond with worldly grief And he says of godly grief and worldly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret and worldly grief produces death. There's two ways to grieve over our sin, godly and worldly. And the difference between these two is pretty much illustrated by any person who gets caught breaking the rule, and you guys all know them, maybe you've been one of them, and the apologies, man, they certainly sound identical. I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. But at a heart level, they could be galaxies apart. One could be saying, really, I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because now I have to be in grief. And I'm sorry because now I must deal with the fact that my sin's been exposed. I'm sorry because now my day's inconvenienced, my week's inconvenience, I've lost opportunity. Me, 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 I, I, I. I'm upset that I have to now face consequences. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is self-centered. It thinks supremely of the effect that the consequence of sin has on oneself. Look what it did to me but there is another kind of grief, another kind of sorrow, and that's called godly grief or godly sorrow. And godly sorrow or grief recognizes first the relational effect that sin has. It recognizes that in sinning, I've wounded someone else. I've wounded the Father's heart. I've rebelled against perfect goodness. I've grieved the Father's heart, and it focuses on whatever is necessary to repair relationship? How do I get back? How do I restore the, the, the salvation and the, the reconciliation? How do I restore the relationship that I once had with my God that this sin has fractured or pulled apart or torn apart? Godly sorrow is us wanting relationship with God at all costs and not thinking about the consequence to ourselves, whatever that may be. Worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly grief world leads to salvation. And in verse 2, David writes this He writes, How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. In the New American Standard Bible, it translates that same passage How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Truly, this would be a blessed person, yes? God not taking into account, yep, that would be awesome. But what on earth, in Psalm 32, in whatever year that was written, what on earth got into David to make him think that was even possible? What on earth made him think that God would ever do something like that? It's it's an outlandish speculation. It's it's bold. Uh, that'd be like me saying, man, blessed is the person whose guilt the California Highway Patrol does not hold against him as he goes flying down Highway 50 at 87 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic right past the cop. Yeah, would be blessed. <laughs> but fat chance. Highly unlikely. And yet, David makes this bold proclamation. How blessed would that be? How awesome, how joyful would that person be? And it's awesome because the Bible is full of cross-references and quotes, and they become so helpful in understanding how the Bible is to be read. And this is one of those. Left alone, this this Psalm 32 is like, wow, that's really pie-in-the-sky fancy thinking there, but probably not gonna happen but then the apostle Paul grabs it. He grabs that verse out of Psalm 32 and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which breathes new life into that scripture, he plops it down right in the middle of Romans. Right in the middle of Romans chapter four, where he's talking about Abraham and was Abraham justified by works, the things he did by keeping the law, by obeying, or was Abraham justified by faith? Right there in the middle, he drops this scripture He says, What then shall we say, Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. You work, you get paid. That's not a gift. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, restored relationship with God, the perfect and holy God. And then Paul says, so also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. And then we begin to see, oh my goodness. It's not so outlandish. It's not so crazy talk. You mean there is a way in which God will not count iniquity against a person? He will not count sin against a person? And Paul says, yes, in fact, it is on the same basis that Abraham, who was, received a special revelation from God to come and go into the land and God would do certain things through him and his family that ultimately led in Christ. And Abraham believed. And Abraham was before the law. The law wasn't even there for him to obey. And yet in his belief, it was reckoned to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. It was righteousness by faith alone. It was righteousness by grace alone. It was a gift on the basis of belief. It was by grace through faith that Abraham received it from God. And we find in the New Testament that in Christ, this offering, this offering to be reckoned to God right, not on the basis of doing right or wrong, but on the basis of faith alone by grace, that Christ is actually Offering that to the whole world. Abraham had this special revelation from God and he began to walk in it. And yes, he became a nation. And some in, within that nation also put their faith and hope in Christ, in God, in the same way that Abraham had. And so they also were reckoned righteous. But in Jesus, it blew the doors open and it said, This offer, oh, this offering is actually for the whole world. And so, David in Psalm 32, Knowingly or unknowingly, was ultimately referring to Jesus. He saw this is within God's character. For whatever it is, however he had experienced, he was a man after God's own heart. His time in prayer, his time in worship, his study of the Torah, and his understanding of who God was, he came to the conclusion: this is the kind of God that I'm worshiping. He's the kind of God who, in the end, values faith over works. In the end, values trust trust in Him loyal love to him and he just might do this crazy thing he just might count someone righteous not on account of the law but by faith that's that's the kind of god not that he imagined he experienced and paul just paul just takes that from romans and continues to stretch that idea out in second corinthians When he says this, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them or the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The door's open, kicked open by Christ. Christ. This crazy, fantastical idea that somehow was planted in the heart of David and written in the the words of Psalm 32 is reality. God is not counting trespasses. God is not counting transgression against the sinner anymore through faith. And so my final thoughts from this passage today, and I'll bring the worship team up to close this out. We're gonna close out with communion. Is that on the cross... Jesus took all our sin, transgressions and iniquities. And for a Roman crucifixion, a Roman crucifixion, the guilty was stripped naked, they were totally exposed. And it was intended to be that they would be mocked, that they would be ridiculed, that they would be spit on, that they would be cursed. Because it was not just about the death, but it was about the shame in the death. There was nothing more shameful than a Roman crucifixion. And at the very beginning, at the the end of that first verse in Psalm 32, it says, how joyful is the one whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. And on the cross, Jesus was totally uncovered. Completely uncovered. Subject to the ultimate shame. Exposed. And what he went through is exactly what the sinner deserves. We deserve, you and I, to have all of our hypocrisy. All of our self-centeredness. All of our rebelliousness. Completely uncovered and shamefully exposed for everyone to see. That's what we deserve. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible says that Jesus went through all of that for us. He was exposed so that we could be covered. He was laid bare subject to shame, the shame we deserved, so that we could be welcomed in as sons and daughters of the king. What, what an exchange. There's an old hymn that reads, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain for me who he to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We have to see our sin for what it is, but it doesn't stop there. You and I get to turn and look at Christ for who he is. And something that struck me in worship as we were preparing and as the worship team will lead us in just a second. And maybe I'm gonna go ahead and release as the worship team leads, I'm gonna lay out the elements of communion. We're not gonna do as our typical one where you take it back to your seat and we receive it together. But instead, we've, we've brought out the good old uh, altars here, dusted them off just for you and your creaky old knees. <laughs> and what I would encourage is while we're leading worship, while they're leading worship and singing over us, whenever you feel comfortable and when it kind of clears out and there's room for you, come and grab some elements and just spend a moment at the altar. Something that I realized as I was worshiping is to look to the cross, you have to lift up your head. You can't see the cross on the ground. You have to lift up your head. And our heads down, well, heads downcast, that's shame. But to look to the cross is to lift up our head. And just remember that Christ lifted up our head he went to the cross and paid the ultimate price for us. How can it be that you, my God, should die for